What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And yeah, right before I introduce my awesome, awesome guest, Rob Henderson, just some real, real quick things. All right. Uh, if you're not yet, make sure to follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at the Rewired Soul. In the coming weeks, uh, the podcast schedule is going to be changing just a little bit. Not sure yet uh, because my schedule is changing. I don't have a for sure like time of what my availability will be like. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter just so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And I just love chatting with all of you and having conversations and getting book recommendations and all that stuff. And by the way, if you're new here, make sure you follow the podcast, subscribe. And if you've been listening for a while, do me a favor, take two seconds, just two seconds out of your day head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. I would appreciate it a ton. All right. But now that that's out of the way, let me talk to you about this dude, Rob Henderson. So I've been following him for a while. Uh, I originally started following Rob just because he reads a ton and he's into a lot of the same types of books that I am. So I get a ton of book recommendations from him and everything. But I, uh, I was really introduced to him and this idea of uh, luxury beliefs um, when I believe he was on Barry Weiss's podcast. I was like, this is an interesting dude. I need to talk to him. So in this conversation, we talk about, you know, I, I could really relate to Rob's story. Uh, Rob, you know, grew up, he didn't, you know, he had a tough, tough, tough situation. And now, you know, he's killing it. Uh, he went to Yale. Uh, now he is, uh, you know, uh, finishing up school and he, he studies evolutionary psychology. Like by every stretch of the imagination, like Rob should have failed right and as somebody who grew up you know just with an alcoholic mom and just you know not having much and everything like that and struggling with my own addiction and now my life's you know doing really well like i can understand where rob's coming from when he's talking about these luxury beliefs and you'll hear him kind of explain what that is uh in this episode but you know i i i believe that we see the world through a different lens where we see like some of these culture wars and outrage uh culture and everything like that because it's like yo like, how are you guys complaining about these things? Why are you guys highlighting these things but not taking any action? So that's a lot of what we discussed, you know, in this episode about how kind of, you know, affluent or privileged people uh, kind of socially signal with these luxury type beliefs. But yeah. It was great talking with Rob. Uh, we talk a little bit about, you know, his story, what helped him, because as many of you know, I'm obsessed with the idea of, you know, success versus luck and meritocracy. So I asked him, you know, what, what does he think helped him get on the right path? And why, you know, why did he succeed while so many other people from his situation failed? And it's really interesting. You know, he has a lot of humility and he's just such a cool guy. And, you know, we kind of wrap up discussing uh, you know, what can we do to better help kids, right? Kids that come from tough situations and tough backgrounds, because a lot of us know we could be doing better, but we're not, whether it's in the school systems, within our communities and all that. But I also ask him why nobody, nobody on planet earth believes that they're an elite. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you have some interesting responses to that. So yeah, I, I love this conversation. It is definitely in my top favorite conversations that I have and keep an eye out because Rob is working on a book. So make sure you head down in the description, make sure you're following Rob. Uh, I've also linked his websites down there, but he's on Twitter. Like I said, he's always given book recommendations and yeah, he's a great, great, great person to follow. And I'm sure his book will be awesome. And hopefully he'll come back once his uh, book is getting ready to launch. All right. But yeah, again, last reminder, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter as well. That's all linked down in the description below. Uh, so you can stay up to date when the schedule changes with the podcast. But I have a bunch of episodes banked up. I'm going to try to like batch schedule them and all of that. All right. Anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Rob Henderson about luxury beliefs. All right. Hello, Rob. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, good, Chris. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I wanted to have you on uh, because uh, I followed you for a long time just because you read a ton and I love books. But once I heard a little bit about your story and everything like that, like I really kind of connected. So before we dive into it, for those of my audience who are unfamiliar with you, can you kind of give us a rundown of like where you came from, where you're at now? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so so currently I'm uh, uh, in my final year of the PhD program uh, here at Cambridge University in England. Uh, my degree is in social and evolutionary psychology. Uh, before this, I was an undergrad at Yale. I uh, also worked uh, as a research assistant in a psych lab there. So super interested in psychology stuff. But, you know, before all of this, my life was, um, was a lot different. So, you know, just to back way, way up, I was born in Los Angeles uh, into poverty to uh, my mother, who was an immigrant from, from South Korea. She got you know, very addicted to drugs. Uh, so when I was three years old, she was no longer able to care for me. Uh, and she didn't know who my father was. So I was placed into foster care in LA and spent the next five years just bouncing around foster homes. I lived in seven different homes over the next few years. Um, yeah, I went to five different schools and just really bad student, um, really bad grades, it was sort of emotionally conflicted. It was just a really yeah. bad time for me as a little kid. Um, and then I was adopted into uh, you know, this, this working class family, uh, and we settled in a Northern California in, in, in a small town up there called Red Bluff. Um, and, and yeah, my, my adoptive father, he was a truck driver. My adoptive mother was an assistant social worker. And so they, and I had a younger sister too. She was their birth daughter. She became my uh, younger sister. Uh, and, you know, so for a couple of years, I had like this sort of stable home. I was eight years old by this point. Mm -hmm. But uh, about a year later, they divorced. And yeah, that was really hard on me. My adoptive father uh, subsequently severed ties with me because he was upset with my adoptive mother for divorcing him. And this really hit me hard. I mean, after never knowing who my father was and then all the foster homes and then mm -hmm. being abandoned by a second dad was, um, I mean, it, yeah, it just, it, I didn't take it very well at all. So, so again, like my, my grades, my, just everything. By that point, I was raised by a single mom. We lived in a duplex uh, in this, in this town. And yeah, I was, you know, smoking a lot of weed with my friends, yeah. you know, taking like large doses of cough medicine, trying to get high. And then later we would actually get like generic bike it in and start drinking and doing all these crazy things, vandalizing Wait, how, buildings. How old were you like at that age? Like, was this still was, like super uh, young? I was nine when I first started uh, experimenting with drugs and smoking, you know, I was smoking cigarettes like regularly when I was nine. Uh, it was really, yeah. And, and my fr friends, I mean, my friends in the neighborhood too, most of them were raised by either single moms, single parents, or living with like their grandparents or mm -hmm. some other like alternate family arrangement. Um, you know, very little supervision at home for any of us. So we all mm -hmm. just sort of bonded together and got into trouble together. And yeah, I mean, it went on like this, uh, uh, you know, just a lot of family drama and chaos. And so, yeah, by the time I was 17, I barely graduated high school and yeah, just had no real options and decided to join the military mm. and get out of there. I mean, that was like, those were really the only two options for anyone to leave that town was to either enlist or to go to college. And I definitely wasn't going to college. I mean, yeah. I graduated with a you know a 2.2 GPA. And so, yeah, um, served in an enlistment, kind of got my act together. But even then, it was it was hard. Um, I still was like dealing with a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. from my childhood, even when I was serving. But but it was a good environment for me. It had a lot of stability. It gave me the sort of calm and order that I needed to sort of reflect and and to decide what path I wanted to take in my life. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and, and so from there, I, I ended up going to college and yeah, it sort of ended up where I am today. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm curious too, because like for me, like I dealt with a lot of childhood stuff and like, even though my story's different, something I learned when I got sober is like, there's a lot of similarities, even though there's differences, right? And mm. like me, it was like alcoholic mom and she was like gone and I barely talked to her and, you know, and all that stuff. But I'm curious, like, like you're, you're a different person. You're not the kid you were when you were like 10 smoking pot. Right. So like right. what, what happened? Was it, was it, do you think like, was it the military or did you seek like outside help? Like, you know, your, uh, your adoptive mom, she worked in social work. So like, did you do therapy at all? Or is it just like yeah, military yeah. just got your shit together? So it's funny, like at the time, you know, it, it's hard to say, you know, like, like with something like therapy. So, so my, my, so right after my adoptive parents divorced, I was, I was nine years old by that point. Um, and the state of California mandated that I start seeing a therapist mm. because like they were concerned, like 
even before I was adopted, I, you know, I, I had to go through this like psych eval and, you know, even the, 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 the psych psychiatrist who did the eval was like, you know, express some concern that like, you know, a, a kid can't go through this many moves and, and not have some <laughs> yeah. kind of residual, you know, issue. And so keep a close eye on this kid. And then after the divorce, um, they were like, you know, the, the state mandated that I start seeing this therapist. And like, at the time, I don't like, I don't think it, I would have said it helped me. I was like, oh, I go to this lady once a week. And <laughs> the only yeah. reason I, I even was like, you know, okay with it was because I got to go get out of school uh, every Tuesday, you know, before class ended, I got to get out of school an hour early to go to my therapist. And I'm like, yeah. yes, well, whatever it takes to get out of school early. Awesome. And so I'd see this and, and like, I guess I, it probably did help to have like an adult to talk to. But it's hard to know exactly, you know, exactly what effect she had because I was still doing crazy stuff. Maybe it would have mm -hmm. been worse without her, though. I don't know. Mm. Um, and then and then, yeah, I mean, in the military, I started getting some help, too, and started talking, you know, going to therapy, all that stuff. And that all helped me as well. Um, and and so, yeah, and, and and reading a lot as well, like reading a lot about other people's experiences, mm. sort of reflecting, writing a lot, too. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy. You know, I, there were periods of like, you know, I don't think I've ever talked about this, but like, you know, the first couple of years in the military, it was just like intense sort of despair because I think it all sort of hit me at once that like, once yeah. I was out of that environment and I was finally like, you know, in, in a place where the days were predictable and I couldn't like get high or like do anything to like shut off yeah. and I couldn't drink either. Right. Because like the military, you know, when you live in, on a base, like in the barracks, there's actually no underage drinking. I mean, I, I still bent the rules here and there, but it was mm -hmm. hard <laughs> to do that. <laughs> yeah. And so so like I couldn't drink. I couldn't like drown my feelings anymore. Mm. And so to just like sit there in my room alone, like isolated and I'm like, you know, it would hit me. And and it was, um, yeah, sort of sort of trying to process all that stuff. But I think that did help gradually just getting out of that environment and sort of reflecting. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting, man. Like, uh, so I, I worked in treatment here uh, in Las Vegas and like 90 plus percent of our clients came from out of state. And when I got sober, I left Las Vegas. Obviously, I, yeah. it helped, right? Because I was surrounded by this stuff just everywhere. But uh, yeah, I could definitely relate to that because my mom, uh, she shoved me into a sober living because uh, she was about seven years sober when I got sober. And uh, she helped me get sober. She shoved me in a sober living. But yeah, like you're saying, like, uh, I had no cell phone. Everybody I knew was a state away. My son was back here, but, um, you know, I spent my whole life masking all the thoughts, feelings, and emotions with other stuff. And it's like, all right, man, now you got to deal with this. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and part of the reason I'm asking this in a little bit, I'm, I'm always trying to like find the formula or what factors it is that, because obviously there's, there's two different routes you could take. Right. I have friends who have died. I have friends who are still on the wrong path whatever it is. So I'm always like, okay, well, what, what separates this stuff? But, um, but yeah, now, you, now you're killing it. Uh, you went to Yale. Now you're over in Cambridge. And let me ask you this, cause I didn't even realize like your, your thing was like evolutionary, uh, psych. And that's, that's like my favorite topic to get into. Like mm. I'm fascinated by human behavior. And when I found evolutionary psych, I'm like, okay, cool. And like the fact that you talk a lot about status and all these other things, all that stuff really fascinates me. So I'm curious, what drew you to that specific field? Like, what were you looking at where you're like, I want to look into this aspect? Yeah, you know, my first introduction to evolutionary psychology, really to psychology in general, I remember. So this was 2000, I think it was 2011. I was on my way to my first deployment uh, in Al-Udid and in Qatar. And I stopped by this bookstore because you know i was about to go somewhere for six months and there's not much mm -hmm. to do and so books are like one way to sort of you know have something available and so i i um picked up a book called how the mind works just because the title was interesting to me it's yeah. called how the mind works by steven pinker the you know the renowned harvard psychologist and um yeah i read that book while i was deployed and i found it fascinating uh you know he, he writes in there a lot about like how a lot of the sort of features of our mind and our behavior are the result of you know hundreds of thousands of years of evolution and you know a lot of our sexual behavior you know our, the way that we interact with our friends um our behavior even even about like taboos around food all of those mm -hmm. things uh, um are involved you know sort of psychology and evolution in some way um, so sort of my introduction to it, I found it fascinating, um, read, read some other books and then, uh, yeah, once I got to Yale, I was like, yeah, this is kind of the thing that I, I want to, want to really dig into, took some other classes and, 
so yeah, it was uh, it was really just sort of that happenstance, you know, encounter mm-hmm. with that book. But then like that really like made me even more interested. And as far as like, you know, what was it about it that really drew me? I mean, I think it's it could be m- multiple things. I mean, I think it's of course, I think it's inherently fascinating, but then also maybe just, um, you know, my experiences in so many different social environments um, mm-hmm. from you know, uh, foster care to, you know, growing up in, in a sort of rural town in Northern California to the military and just like all of these different experiences that I had, um, you know, maybe, maybe it helped to cultivate an interest in sort of human thought and behavior and those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And real quick, what, what town in California did you grow up in Northern? In Red Bluff. So, so, uh, I was, yeah, I was almost, so seven, almost eight years old, uh, when I left LA and then, um, yeah, my, my adoptive family, we settled in, in Red Bluff, California, which is about two hours North of Sacramento. Uh, uh okay. yeah, it's a population of 13,000. It was really, it's a really rundown town. I mean, when I was there this in the late nineties, the, the median household income was around $27,000 a year. Yeah. Like the biggest employer was Walmart or the mill, mm. uh, like the lumber mill. And the only, like the only claim to fame that town has is it was once, uh, did you ever watch sons of anarchy? Dude, my girlfriend yeah. just yeah. had me get into that when the pandemic started. She's like, you're going to watch this. And I binged it with her. So yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really, at least like the first three seasons I thought were really good. Yeah. It kind of falls off a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's still a great show. Um, but they, in one of the, one of the early seasons, uh, Clay, Clay, the, you know, the, the president of the motorcycle club, he, he mentioned, he briefly mentioned Red Bluff. Um, like one of the, one of the, the, the guys, uh, got transferred to the hospital in Red Bluff, which Ooh. like when I heard that, I was like, why would you transfer to hospital in Red Bluff? That, that hospital sucks. Like, right. why would you go there? But, yeah. but I was like, but it was still exciting. It's like, oh, wow. My, my hometown was mentioned in this hit TV show, but that's like the only time anyone has ever heard yeah. of Red Bluff was like, oh, was that in Sons of Anarchy? Like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And actually charming in Sons of Anarchy, it sort of resembles Red Bluff. So, yeah. Yes. I, I'm originally from Fresno, California, which is central. And when that gets mentioned, it's like the butt of Joe's. And yeah, that's actually where I went back to get sober, too. I, I'm not a huge fan of that town, but my entire family has lived there their entire lives. So, of course, yeah. <laughs> forced to go visit. But, um, but yeah. So, with uh, getting back to, uh, yeah, evolutionary psych, like, yeah, I, I really got into it because I was always interested in learning about about this whole status thing, because in my I, I think it was in my addiction, uh, I was making more money than I ever made, like towards my rock bottom. Right. But I was still miserable. And mm. so when I got sober, I, I took a step back and I'm like, you know, why? Why do I want money? Why do I want stuff? And I realized, like, you know, I wasn't getting it for me. And I also started getting into like mindfulness and Buddhist philosophy and stuff. And I realized like all the shit I was getting was to impress others. I'm like, that's weird. And then I started diving into it and I'm like, oh, we've been doing this forever, right? We've been trying to flex on people since we were in, you know, in these little like tribes. And I think that's what's interesting too is I look around, I'm like, man, we are still just as primitive as we were, but you just threw some technology at us and we're doing it a little bit uh, differently. But um, yeah, as, as we started diving into this, this, uh, this term luxury beliefs, we'll talk a little bit about how we're using like, uh, I, I forgot what you said in this piece I was reading for me, but like conspicuative, uh, like, uh, not consumption, but something else. But anyways, before we dive mm. into that. Oh, conspicuous lay, conviction. There we go. There right, we go. Right. So we'll, we'll touch on that after you kind of lay down the foundation for those who are unfamiliar with this term luxury beliefs, because you kind of noticed mm. it going from your background to Yale and things seemed a little different and off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was so, so luxury beliefs, uh, I define as ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And I came up with this idea initially when I, when I had first entered Yale, I, you know, came from a very different, uh, background than a lot of these students, um, who are disproportionately from like very affluent families. And yeah, I mean, I was seeing just like very, unusual and bizarre beliefs and opinions that I'd never encountered anywhere before. <laughs> and, you know, when they started talking about it, I'm like, what is going on here? Like, I've never heard this. And, and but, but yet, you know, oftentimes they wouldn't, the, the opinions that they espoused did not align with their actual behavior. I mean, a simple example I've given before is like, you know, uh, um, well, well, one example, you know, this, I haven't talked about this in a while, but like the, the sort of, um, uh, the, the, the family thing, which is like, you know, I talked to this, this, this girl, uh, Yale, former classmate, and, and she was telling me, you know, oh, I think like monogamy is outdated, marriage is outdated, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, 
and then I asked her, well, how did you grow up? And she was like, well, I, you know, she, she had a mother and a father and an intact family, yeah. just like the vast majority of students at these fancy universities do. And then I asked her, well, how do you plan to raise your kids? And she said, well, I'll probably settle down and get married and have a husband and have my family. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, but, but you're saying monogamy is outdated. And she was like, well, I'm just saying that like, you know, it is like a patriarchal institution and maybe we should evolve beyond it and not everyone has to follow it and blah, blah. And like, I, I ran into this repeatedly. I mean, not just with monogamy, but with other, other kinds of stuff too, like, yeah. uh, you know, other versions of like sexual promiscuity, um, all of this stuff. Um, and you know, so, so these luxury beliefs, basically like what, what I found is that they'll broadcast these things like monogamy is outdated because it, it elevates their status in the eyes of mm -hmm. their peers, but then privately, um, they'll live in a very different way. And, you know, the, the, there's plenty of research on this, um, in terms of who cares the most about social status, mm -hmm. uh, tend to be people who already have it. So people who are already sort of, uh, greater than average wealth, greater than average status, um, those are the people who care the most about wealth and status. So it's actually an interesting positive correlation that the more you have, the more you want, mm -hmm. which is a little bit, for me, it was kind of counterintuitive because I, I, I think I would have predicted before, before I learned the results, I would have predicted that sort of the people in the bottom would, would care the most about wealth and status, right? People who don't have much of it would really want to sort of climb up the ranks, but it's actually not the case. It's actually the people who are at the top who are particularly, you know, greedy for more. Yeah. And then, um, you know, so I, I, I encountered that research. And then uh, alongside that, I was reading about um, you know, research from Thorsten Veblen, who was this uh, old uh, sociologist and economist from the late 19th century who talked about how, you know, the rich and the aristocrats of his day, you know, dem displayed their wealth with their material goods, you know, mm -hmm. expensive tuxedos and evening gowns and, you know, uh, playing expensive hot, like golf, uh, beagling, um, polo all of these things to sort of like flash how how wealthy they are maybe jewelry pocket watches monocles mm -hmm. those kinds of things and so today how do how do people do it well i i think it's it's become less fashionable to display wealth with material goods it's not it hasn't gone away people still do it mm -hmm. but not to the same extent and and yet the upper class still desires to show their status in some way and so i argue that it's through their sort of unusual or interesting beliefs that often have um sort of uh, detrimental knock-on effects for people who are less fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting too. Just, uh, you know, even looking at, I forgot what I was reading. What a lot of, now I can't remember, but like, even with like, uh, some forms of like philanthropy, right. I was, I was reading, you know, one of these authors had a theory that, you know, part of that is like, look how much money I can give away because it doesn't affect me. Right. So it's almost like yeah. these, these good behaviors or things that we're saying are kind of like covered up with this, this own thing to raise your status. Right. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, like I remember when I got sober, right? Like when I got sober, I had, I had nothing, right? No friends would talk to me. My family wouldn't talk to me. I wasn't allowed to see my son for like the last month. Like things were bad, right? Like I was like not getting my kid, like, you know, good food and toys and stuff so I can go buy drugs. And my life was a mess. And, you know, when I went to Saturday going to 1270, we started talking about like Cadillac problems, right? We were talking about the normies in our lives, like bitching about stuff that doesn't even matter. And I think mm -hmm. that's when I started to notice this stuff, like, because when you, when you come from this sort of background or you hit some sort of bottom, like all this stuff seems trivial. And I think that's when I started noticing the culture war stuff. I'm like, are you yeah. guys really wasting your time? Like, do you not know what's going on in the world? Do you not understand the suffering that's happened where you think that like, you should even like pay any attention to this? You know what I mean? And, and yeah, like it makes sense that this is this way of displaying status. But, um, uh, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, Grants, uh, grandstanding from Justin Tosi and, uh, yeah. right. So, Brandon so do you, yeah, so they, they argue that, you know, part of this is, you know, this moral grandstanding is part of that as well. Like this kind of status thing, like, look how good I am. And they'll purposely put people down or as part of the cancel culture, you know, activity that people partake in. So do you see that kind of intertwining or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, so, so some people have accused me of like, oh, isn't luxury beliefs just virtue signaling or, you know, I think there's, there's some overlap, but it's not exactly the same grandstanding too. I mean, so, so grandstanding is, is, I guess, in a way, it's similar to virtue signaling and that people will sort of like elevate themselves by by sort of bragging about how moral they are, or how they care about this or that cause. Um, virtue signaling is kind of the same. I mean, for me, luxury beliefs, it, it really is 
Um, it's about status. It's about class. It's not necessarily about morality, though. It doesn't have to be about about morality. It can be about other things. Um, you know, like for example, I mean, I guess you could argue that there's a moral component to this, but like the 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 movement, especially popular among more affluent people, about like uh, you know legalizing sex work or sex work is work. And I mm -hmm. think if you're an affluent person who, you know, if you're a person, you know, with OnlyFans or something or a high end escort, that's yeah. one, you know, I guess, you know, that's that's probably pretty comfortable and safe. But for people who are poor, who, you know, who are desperate for money and so on, like for them, sex work will look very different. Mm -hmm. And I'm not entirely sure legalizing it would would do anything. You know, there's uh, drug legalization as well. I mean, you're familiar with you know how you know the, the the complexities of of drug use but then i you know i've i've argued this before that if you completely legalize it and make it fairly accessible like you know there's there's a chance that like i wouldn't be here because of how like how interested in that stuff i was yeah. when i was a kid and yeah i mean i think like having some barriers to access is actually a good thing i mean it's not that like if you really want to get drugs it's not that hard to get them but yeah. like ha like just like making them available at uh, at the liquor store or the grocery store i i think mm -hmm. it would be it would like any any drug right like marijuana is probably fine but like yeah. some of the hard stuff i think would be really bad um and so like you know these these opinions about like you know sex workers work we should legalize drugs all this kind of stuff and then if you actually look at the the personal lives of a lot of these people you know they themselves are not like frequenting prostitutes they're not uh, you know like doing doing drugs in their own mm -hmm. personal lives like they often many many times they're like sort of living these sort of like square like conventional lives yeah. <laughs> um but they're they're talking about how they support this kind of stuff and and it, it makes them look sort of trendy and fashionable and i argue that a lot of that is they're sort of signaling against conventional morality if you find like the sort of median typical conventional middle-class american and ask them these questions um and I've, I've actually shared data on this that like who who is the most supportive of drug legalization well it's actually people who make more than a hundred thousand dollars a year mm. this is actually like a, a positive correlation between the more money you make the more supportive you are of that of of legalizing prostitution all these things and people who uh, aren't so well off um tend to be uh sort of more cautious about these kinds of things mm -hmm. and I, I think that like oh so an upper an upper class person who's oh they're these these like sort of the normies who believe xyz well i'm going to show how i'm you know, more educated and sophisticated than them by having this other yeah. uh, kind of opinion. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about drugs. I, I love talking about drugs. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you you mentioned uh, the drug legalization belief, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I have a second part of this question, but I'll, I'll save it because this might go a little deep. But anyway, so like as far as the drug legalization, like I am personally torn, right? Like. Mm -hmm. If like, yeah, in my addiction, if this stuff was easily accessible, like I'd probably be dead. Like who knows how many times I just didn't die or overdose because I couldn't get uh, my hands on any, or I couldn't afford it, you know, or whatever. But anyways, I've had people on the podcast, like Dr. Carl Hart, who I'm sure you're familiar with. I've had, uh, 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 Michael Schellenberger on recently mm. too. And he talks about, you know, San Francisco and how they're going like way overboard with this stuff. And, you know, but I've, I've looked at, uh, you know, some research, some data that seems, you know, like when, uh, cause people will point to other countries, like, and that's, that's kind of where I'm at with a lot of policies. I'm like, well, let's see if anybody's doing it right. And, you know, maybe we can mimic that, but, but yeah, like, uh, it feels like here in the United States where I get torn on it is even if, even if you guys are right, we legalize this thing, it's less, uh, you know, people are not looking for it as much. Cause it's not like, you know, the cool thing to do because it's legal or whatever. The, you know, the, the main uh, factor of addiction from what I've seen and what I've read is like mental illness or like deaths from despair. Like people are struggling. So they're using, like we were talking about, people are using these substances to cope. So if we made it this free for all without fixing these underlying problems, like that's where I get kind of worried. But anyways, mm. so I feel like, you know, uh, I, I don't see myself looking at this from like a luxury place. I feel like I've looked into this. I'm still kind of divided on it, but there are, there seem to be some strong arguments for it. So I'm curious, like what your thoughts are like against some of the stronger arguments that aren't just like, Hey man, just legalize heroin. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, first it doesn't just affect the user. It would affect the people around them too. Right? Like, I mean, I was my, my, uh, biological mother was hooked on drugs and I was mm -hmm. taken from her and who knows what would have happened if, if, if it had been more easily accessible. And so 
it's, I mean, if you're, you know, some 21 year old college student, no one depends on you, no one relies on you and you're sort of, you know, young and carefree, that's one thing. But if you have a family, if you have kids, mm-hmm. if you have, then, then having uh, freely accessible drugs, I, I, I just, you know, it's going to make life worse for people who, who depend on, on you for, for their, you know, their, their livelihood, their survival. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that like, I haven't seen anyone adequately address that, that like, you know, uh, drug use for grownups. If you're a grownup, you should be able to use drugs. Yeah. Fine. But like often grownups have families, they have kids, they have spouses, they have elderly parents. They have like mm-hmm. someone is relying on them. And if they can just go to the store and pick up whatever drug they want, um, very easily, then yeah, I just don't see how this is going to, to end well for, for the people around them. Yeah. Um, and then for kids too, right? Like, I mean, if you're if you're a little kid and you want to get get alcohol because it's available at the store, it's pretty pretty easy to get your hands on some if you want it. But you know, I, I wonder like if if heroin or cocaine or all these other things become mm-hmm. like over the counter or someone's older. I mean, like you know, when when you used to like get booze in high school, or whatever, someone's older yeah. brother would like go to the store and do a do a beer run or something. I mean, if you could do the same thing with with all kinds of hard drugs, like yeah, I think. You know, but but again, like I, I I'm probably not as familiar as I should be with what's going on in other countries and how they've been handling mm. some of these these trickier sort of thorny questions. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty skeptical about it simply from some of my own experiences and and yeah. from what I've seen. So yeah, yeah, for sure. That's uh, what you brought up is my number one thing. As soon as people are like, oh, just legalize it, and you know, if somebody wants to do it, I'm like. I'm like, no, you don't understand because, like, for example, uh, we were talking a little bit, like, I, I wrote a piece for Newsweek when uh, we reached a record number of overdose deaths, 100,000 just in the United States. And what what I've always uh, told people, like, through my work, uh, talking with families, uh, talking at events and stuff is for every single person who died, there's, all, t- there's friends, there's family members, there's people who knew that person. So that 100,000 is probably closer to a million people affected, right? Now we're not even thinking mm. about all the people who survived, right? How many people yeah. are, are overdosing, being revived and, you know, the family's just watching them go through this cycle over and over. So, so I definitely, you know, uh, hear you there. And I think it's, you know, this difficult nuanced conversation because there's this uh, new movement for uh, harm reduction, right? Where it's like open, you know, safe injection sites and all these other things. And I, uh, I still ask the same question. I'm like, how is having a heroin addict safely inject going to help like the family who is just still not have, you know, their, their, you know, brother, sister, father, whoever it is in their life. Right. Because a lot of these injection sites or home reduction places are not offering uh, adequate treatment as well. You know what I mean? So it's, mm. it's this, uh, it's a really, really <laughs> tricky thing, but, um, but one of the luxury beliefs I wanted to uh, talk to you about, I don't know if you heard, I'm sure you did, but did you hear about like the, the, uh, the, the viral situation around uh, Chamath uh, last week. He's like a multi-billionaire. Like, yeah, he mentioned uh, it being a luxury belief uh, caring about the Uyghurs, right, in mm. Asia. And and I could get in trouble for talking about this. But, like, I, I'm, not a huge, <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of the guy, but I feel like I 1,000% understood the point he was trying to make, right? So yeah. for anybody listening who didn't catch that, uh, they were talking about the Uyghurs on their podcast. And he said, like, I don't care. Right. And he, he called it a luxury belief. Like it's a luxury belief for you to spend time caring about what's happening over there. Right. And like, mm-hmm. I get it. Right. Like I, dude, I, I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a father. Right. I have bills to pay. Uh, uh, I've been self-employed for a while now. So I'm hustling to try to do my own thing. Like, yeah, I only, I only have so much cognitive energy. So yeah. I get what he was saying. I, but it almost seems like people were pissed off as a way to signal like, oh, that's not correct. So <laughs> I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, it, it's uh, I mean, <laughs> I thought the way he put it was a little bit, we'll say indelicate. Yeah, but but like <laughs> but I, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, like he because he was very I mean, I watched the clip and he was just like, look, it's below my line. I don't care. Yes. Like, whatever. <laughs> There's other stuff we need to be looking at. And it was very sort of dismissive. But but I do I I understood what he meant which so so there was um you know a, a bunch of people you know uh, in, in the chattering classes you know uh, journalists and so forth had to opine about this yeah. and there was an interesting piece in the Atlantic uh, the the uh, Connor Connor Friedersdorf Free, or something he quoted someone saying like you know like yeah okay so I'm um you know so, so something along the lines of like 
you know, I, I'm a better person than Chamath. What? Because I have a better opinion than him. Like, okay. So he says he doesn't care about the Uyghurs. I do. But like, what material difference does that make for anyone? Right. Yeah. But like, oh, I hold the proper opinion and he holds the improper opinion. And who cares? Because like, and I, I, I tweeted something about this too, that like, you know, all these people who claim to care about what's going on with the Uyghurs or sort of, um, you know, uh, denigrating Chamath for what he said. It's like, how many of these people are, are donating time or money or effort or anything mm -hmm. to the Uyghurs, right? Like, I, I, I just, um, I'm very skeptical that any of them are actually doing anything other than sort of, like you said, like signaling, like broadcasting. Well, I hold the correct opinion. Like, they might as well just say that. Like, I hold the correct opinion. He holds the incorrect one. Yeah. Great for you. But but is it is it actually a luxury belief? That was a question that I've gotten from a few people too, because he used this term on the podcast. Is it a luxury belief? And it's, you know, my direct opinion or my, my direct definition is, you know, a luxury belief is an idea or opinion that confers status on the upper class while inflicting costs on the lower classes. And I think it does like sort of like broadcasting your concern, even if you're not actually doing anything uh, for the Uyghurs, that does, I think, elevate your status in in, in the eyes of many of your peers. And it is something that I, I think something like the Uyghurs, that's such a kind of, a, a, at least my impression is that it's much more of a talking point among like highly educated affluent people, mm -hmm. you know, what's going on with the Uyghurs. If you're people, you know, like you mentioned, like people who are hustling, people who are trying to pay their bills and get by that, like, you know, probably the Uyghurs are not like the first thing they think about when they wake up in the morning. And yeah. so, so yeah, I think um, it, it, it is arguably a luxury belief. I mean, is, is it inflicting costs? I mean, I don't see it actually, like, I don't see Chamath expressing that opinion actually hurting the Uyghurs in any way. Um, yeah. so, so yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's debatable. I, I, I have trouble like saying that it is for certain a luxury belief saying that you care about them, but I mean, certainly it does have the, the outcome of making you look good to other people. And, you know, a lot of those people aren't actually doing anything to, to help anyone. Yeah. Yeah. This, this kind of, this, this will, you'll see where this goes. It'll kind of segue over into, uh, the, uh, this next topic I want to talk to you about, but something I, I, I learned in early recovery and just kind of made like a personal you know, a uh, stance of mine was I'm not allowed, I'm, I, I make it so I'm not allowed to complain about anything unless I'm willing to do something about it. Right. Hmm. So I'm not going to sit here and complain about the Uyghurs and, you know, and all that stuff. Like I can care. Right. But I'm not going to go around shaming people and stuff. Cause like you mentioned, like, what am I doing? Have I donated a penny? Have I done anything? You know? Hmm. And, and it's really interesting too, uh, because it seems like, especially since the rise of social media, we, we, we feel like, uh, saying something or raising awareness is like doing something right mm -hmm. uh you know I, I love the term slacktivism like you just sit online and just talk yeah. about oh oh this is terrible did you know that you know uh these people in this country these i'm like what do you you know when they're sitting like in their like million dollar houses driving their expensive cars you know uh especially and i, I got even more pissed once i really got into effective altruism and started reading all those books you know what i mean yeah, uh, yeah. because i'm like how many of you like you know, but, but you're, you know, you're buying these things to show your status, you're traveling all over the world. And, you know, somebody who's broke, I know how expensive that is. So it's a lot of talk and not much doing. And it's really weird because, uh, it feels like as a society, uh, uh, we fall for it, right? Like we look at people's talk and not their actions. And that kind of like screws me up. I'm like, look at them. I'm like, no, see what their feet are doing. Right. Not what their mouth yeah. is doing. See? See what they're actually doing. I like that. Them. See what their feet are doing. Yeah, yeah. That's. I think. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna borrow that. That's useful. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we make this mistake, right? That we we pay attention to what people are saying and mm -hmm. and not enough, I think, to what what they're actually doing. Because yeah, that that reveals what really people care about is is what they actually spend time physically doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well. Yeah. It's. Uh, I think I had to learn that when I was looking for a sponsor. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. there's people mm -hmm. who go up in a twelve step meeting, just talking all this stuff. Then they leave. They go cheat on their wives, beat up, beat their <laughs> kids. Like I knew people. I well, I've known people who are like five years sober and they're still like getting arrested and shit. Right? I'm like, I don't care what you're saying in a meeting because you're a hot mess. You know? Yeah, so yeah. I'm like, I listen to somebody who's all like, oh, charity and stuff. They're not doing anything. But um. But yeah, this kind of transits, uh, transitions into uh, something I really wanted to talk about was kind of like this, uh, this personal responsibility and taking action. Because like I said mm -hmm. earlier, I'm always trying to like crack the code and figure out what it is, right? Because on paper, people like uh, you shouldn't be where you are right now, right? And you went through multiple foster homes. And I, I don't think we saw the same success from those kids. So like... I'm sure you've reflected on this. Like, what do you think separates it? Because I, I, there's always that conversation about uh, equality of outcome 
versus quality of opportunity, right? And I also mm. think a lot about success versus luck. You know what I mean? So I'm curious just how you attribute where you are today and what factors were at play. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's funny because, you know, there's a lot of, I think there's like this, well, well, for a while, I think it's, it's sort of receded, but for a while there was this popular fad uh, originating from psychology about like the self-esteem movement about like, oh, yeah. the reason kids aren't doing well is because they don't have enough self-esteem and we need to raise self-esteem mm-hmm. and tell kids how great they are and so on. And for me, it actually didn't, I mean, because like I, I had that kind of similar experience where like, you know, I, teachers uh, would recognize potential in me and they would encourage me. They're like, if you just stop ditching class, if you just stop screwing up and like, you know, hanging out with those boys over there, like you'd be okay. Just stop, you know, you know, whatever, apply yourself, do the right yeah. thing. Here. And I wouldn't like, I would, I would flat out reject a lot of it, but you know, like what, what was the, it's hard to say for a certain, like what it, what it was in the end. I mean, it was, it was probably a lot of different things. I did have like, you know, people who made a difference in my life. I had teachers who took some interest in me. Um, people who who wanted you know there, there was just like I think just having that in the air even if I didn't necessarily um like I was good at spotting good advice even if I didn't mm. um adhere to it so when I would hear it I was like that person is right and and it would stick with me and then eventually it probably led to me actually enlisting in the military because I heard a couple of different teachers and one of my friends dad dads who was a veteran himself like they all sort of said like you know that would be that would be a great idea for you because they could, could see that like if I could just get out of that environment I would be okay um, and then, you know, I, I, I was just like a naturally curious kid. I mean, you know, I, when I was in the foster homes, like no one ever read to me. I, um, you know, I, I, I was not paying attention in school. So I ended up teaching myself to read mm. and I really loved it. Like my love of reading, wherever that ha- happened to have come from, if it was sort of intrinsic or I sort of managed to, to do well at it because I was just sort of lonely in these homes. And it was like a way for me to sort of mentally escape some of them. Uh, I spent a lot of time reading and, and, you know, just maybe that helped me to, to later on sort of, um, uh, what discover my, my interests, my academic interests and things mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, I, I, I can never say for certain what it was, man, because I had five friends who like my five close friends from high school was like a little group of six of us. And yeah, I mean, one of them joined the military. He ended up doing okay for himself. Two of them went to prison, uh, one of them is, well, he just got fired from Walmart. Um, and then the other one, I'm actually not sure where he ended up. Um, but, but as far as I know, he's still like in that general area in Northern California. didn't go to college. I mean, I think all five of them at one point or another were enrolled in a community college and none of them ended up getting their degrees, um, or transferring to, to a four-year school. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say for sure, like what it, what it was that, that, uh, that stood out for me. But I mean, one thing that I've, I've tried to do since I've been so fortunate is to like highlight some of the, you know, the misfortunes that I had experienced and that my friends experienced growing up. And one of the things that I, I've recently been thinking about. So last week I visited the Michaela school in London, which is, um, a school located in the in the inner city in 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 uh, an impoverished part of northern london um more than half the kids are on free lunch programs like you know a lot of them are from sort of single parent homes foster homes those kinds of things and this school is run like like like, like almost like a military school like very strict um the teachers like you know the kids aren't allowed to speak in the hallways uh, there's really? no talking in the hallways they're not allowed to bring phones to school um, the teachers are, are frequently handing out merits and demerits for like good behavior for, they encourage not just like academic excellence, but like speaking with clarity, you know, like if a kid raises his hand to give an answer, the teacher will say like, you know, you need more vocal projection in your voice. Mm. Um, they teach things like, like soft skills, eye contact, handshakes, uh, punctuality, like showing up on time. So I arrived at the school at 12:15 and as soon as i got to the school's reception i saw the receptionist like berating these two boys for being late like you know where were you well you were at the stoplight well why were you at the stoplight how long were you there yeah. like you know all this stuff and interrogating them and i thought to myself like this is like you know if i had gone to a school like this or if my friends had gone to a school like this i think our lives might have turned out you know better different something yeah. um because there's an emphasis not just on sort of doing like getting good grades but also like sort of um learning how to show up to a place on time, 
how to interact with people, how to have an adult conversation, all of those things. And yeah, we didn't really have that. So, so anyway, like, yeah, that, that experience just sort of opened my eyes to the fact that like, it's not all about like academics and doing well yeah. in school. There are all of these soft skills that, that, uh, that kids who grew up, um, in, in, you know, deprived circumstances, never learn, never pick up. Like I sort of picked it up on the way. I think joining the military helped a lot because mm -hmm. like the military becomes your parent and teaches you how to behave properly. Um, but even then, like I made these like, you know, like silly errors, like even things like how to use silverware proper, like cutlery and, yeah. you know, small things like that, that I had never learned growing up. And, you know, I just think that we, we, do, we place too much focus. And, and I say this, you know, a lot of people accuse me of being a hypocrite or whatever, but I think we, we focus too much on education for kids. And there are a lot of other things we need to be looking at yeah. um, that starts way earlier than, than school. Yeah, that that was that was some of the best stuff I've ever heard. Cause I, I couldn't agree more. Like I had to learn all that stuff when I got sober, right? How to show up on time, how to be accountable, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like man, like if I if I like like I, I can't even remember the last time I missed an appointment or didn't give somebody like adequate time because that was drilled into my head when I got sober. Like sobriety and this is why i go on rants like i have a i have a episode with bridget fetacy coming up <laughs> like this kind of like soft like mental health recovery thing that's going on i'm like no like i needed that tough love like if i walked mm. into a meeting five minutes late i needed someone to like talk some shit to me and tell me that i needed to be responsible but like you're saying these like soft skills in school i had brian kaplan on a while ago who wrote the case against education and it's just, you know, we're learning all these things, right? And like, uh, you know, certain topics that we're never going to use later on. And I've been thinking a lot lately about financial literacy, right? Like I've been sober nine and a half years. I'm 36 years old. I'm just learning. I, I'm just now repairing my credit. I'm learning about investing and saving, right? Uh, because my parents, they, they still have terrible credit to this day and all these other things. So, but uh, I guess, you know, uh, I have a few more questions for you, but one of them is when we're talking about this, right? Like that school seems like that school is killing it. But I wrote, I wrote a Substack piece the other day about parents losing their shit, right? Like they're, oh my God, masks are going to make our kids die. Or, you know, very wise. She had someone write a piece over there. She was talking about this senior in high school who was afraid she was going to kill someone with COVID and we're two years into it. I'm like, okay, well, what's going on with that girl? Because I don't think that's normal. Right. Mm. But we're like constantly freaking out about these kids, but it seems too like a lot of parents put the like oh the school's responsible for these things like the things that you're talking about should be done at home but i understand if they're not because yeah. uh you you have these you know these things pass through generations you know what i mean like i've learned mm -hmm. that like you know hurt people hurt people and like all these other things but when you think about this stuff or like even if if i gave you a school tomorrow and how you would structure it like how much split responsibility you think there is between like a school and what's going on in the household because it seems like everybody's trying to throw the responsibility at other people and i'm just like well how like the kids are suffering so how the hell do we help them you know what i mean yeah yeah well kids are often uh overlooked there's a <laughs> so so the the yale um sociologist and uh and physician he's uh nicholas christakis he wrote uh in in one of his recent books that you know, something along the lines of like every single policy that has ever been implemented in the U.S. Uh, uh, regarding like childcare and like sort of uh, child education, all those things, it's it's put uh, adult interests before the interests of of the children. And yeah, I mean, it's it, it, kids are kind of like kids are sort of vulnerable. They're small. Mm -hmm. They're powerless. They can't vote. Like they're not a constituency. They, there's like they don't really, you know, they they can't uh, form a. Uh, a political group and exercise power right so so the adults yeah. get to decide what's going to happen to them and yeah i think um you know there there could be much more done at home but somehow as a culture we've decided that we can't really put too much responsibility on parents or there's just this reluctance to judge or to um to pressure parents to to parent better and so all of this goes on to the schools and I think there are some schools that are doing an amazing job of it. I mean, like like the Michaela school that I had mentioned, I mean, they're doing an incredible job. A lot of these kids are overlooked and, and neglected at home. And, and so the schools are stepping in. But I mean, I think we can do both things at once. On the one hand, we can sort of say that like schools can be improved and maybe more schools should be sort of teaching soft skills in addition to the academics. I mean, you know, showing up somewhere on time and like learning how to, how to behave respectfully to someone is, is, is going to go farther like it's going to carry you further in life than like knowing the quadratic formula or yeah. like you know the literary motifs of of the giver 
or something, right? Like these, these sort of like all, all of the minutia that you learn in school is not that important compared to like the basics of, of, of social living. Um, but yeah, I mean, parents can, can, can do well too. Um, and yeah, I think, I think we'd also, also promote that. I mean, one of the things that I've stressed in, in a lot of my own writing is that, you know, like, yeah, I ended up doing pretty well for myself and, and getting a, a, you know, good education and, and sort of managing to climb out of where I came from. But, you know, like I, I would, I would give up all of it to, to go back and to have never had to experience all the things that I experienced. And so, you know, this focus on like, you know, even if every single foster kid gets into, you know, a, some fancy school and, you know, makes a lot of money or whatever, gets a, gets a good job that doesn't suddenly like erase all of the things that they went through as kids. Yeah, I would rather more kids have good childhoods than, you know, all the foster kids get into Harvard or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like I would much rather kids have a, a decent childhood. It's a good in itself. Like a good childhood isn't, isn't a good thing because, oh, like kids from two parent families and, you know, graduate from college at a higher rate or they earn more money over the course of their lives. Like these are all the sort of metrics that a lot of um, sort of the, the journalists and academic class they focus on about like what's what's good about um, two parent homes or like what why single parent homes can often be detrimental and they focus on occupation or education or lifetime earnings and I I always see that and it just like you know it irritates me because I think like a good childhood is a good in itself you don't have to justify it with yeah. like money or education so it's like the kid is happy and the subjective the subjective experience of that kid uh, being sort of satisfied and looked after um, even if the kid even if the kid goes on to be a criminal or whatever. But at least they had a good childhood. I think that's like that. That in itself is worth uh, worth promoting. So, yeah, yeah, it's 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 weird. Like I was, I was someone was interviewing me the other day, uh, and you know they were asking me, you know, because they've seen like where I've come, where I've been, where I come, you know, all that, and they were like saying, well, you know, what, you know, what if somebody, you know, were to argue like, oh, well, look, Chris can do it, so everybody else can, and I, I, you know, I asked them like. But the question is, like, do we want to live in a world where where a lot of kids have to go through that? You know what I mean? Like, is that the kind of world yeah. where we're like, oh, look, human resilience, let's just toss them into, you know, the, the lion's den and then just hope they fight their way out? I'm like, no, I, I prefer yeah. if they didn't have to go through that. I think that would be the better option, you know, because like I said, like, uh, you know, I, I lost all of my 20s pretty much. Like, that was like, those were my, like my college years and everything because I was addicted and a lot of it came from self-medicating, you know, stuff from childhood and all that. But, um, but yeah, that, that was very well said. And one of the last thing I wanted to ask you is this, because this has been on my mind 24-7 lately, because I'm really into like self-deception and denial, right? Yeah. And uh, something Michael Shermer says all the time is like, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and like, hey, uh, I'm going to put on my pseudoscientist lab coat and go to my pseudoscience lab. Like nobody thinks they're a pseudoscientist, right? Well, mm-hmm. we're talking about luxury beliefs and like, uh, you know, the academic class and elites and stuff. And I've realized is nobody thinks that they're an elite, right? Like, I, 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 I pre- <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure, like, if I ask, like, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, or, you know, Elon Musk, hey, are you an elite? They'd be like, no, nah. right? And that's, <laughs> that's insane. So, so like, oh, I, I'm curious, like, how, how do you define, how do you define this? Like, how are you, you know, not to, like, I don't know, stereotype people, but, like, what are you, what are you looking at? Because I'll, I'll, I'll say this, right? Some Somebody would uh, like, for example, when somebody comes across you and they're like, oh, Mr. Cambridge, look at you and yeah. you're, you're, you're in the elite <laughs> class, right? And then you're like, oh, well, yeah. here's my upbringing. And they're like, oh, like, does your upbringing take you back out? Or, you know, like, could you possibly get into the elite class and forget about everybody else? Like, what is it? It's an interesting uh, question. It's something that I've, I've uh, thought about and wrestled with myself about like, you know, like, who am I? What, what like class or category? And, and I mean, in a way it is fluid. I mean, that's, that is one of the great things about, you know, free countries, places like America, whatever that like you can, you know, occasionally you'll meet someone not often. I mean, there's actually research on this, I think from either Pew or Gallup showing that like, you know, the number of people who were born into the bottom fifth of society, how many of them reach the top fifth later. And it's, it's actually a higher number than you would expect. I mean, I think it's Mm -hmm. greater than 10%. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's not bad. Um, but anyway, so like, well, you know, who is an elite? I mean, I, a, <laughs> a lot of my ideas about class have been informed by like, so writers like Paul Fussell, who wrote this amazing book called class, a guide through the American status system, mm. a very short book. It's like 160 pages. 
Um, and it's, it's like really lighthearted. It's like a, an amusing book because he pokes fun at all the social classes. He spends a lot of time um, sort of uh, insulting the middle class, but, yeah. but generally it's, it's, it's really good. Um, and, and he says that, you know, for upper class membership, you actually have to be born into it. Um, and, and this is similar to what uh, Pierre Bourdieu, uh, who was a French sociologist in the mid 20th century, he wrote a book called Distinction, also about class. Um, and basically, these guys argue that you like in order to be a member of the upper class, you have to have like the right mannerisms, customs, habits, conversational styles, um, tastes, all of these things are just as important as where you went to school or how much money you have to really be a member of the upper class. And you typically have to be born into it, right? Like you have to sort of be um, enculturated and immersed in it from birth to like really demonstrate that, you know, what Bordeaux, he called it ease of mm -hmm. like just sort of like being comfortable with affluence. Um, and so, so in that sense, like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be classified, I don't think as an elite because I wasn't born into it. Um, but at the same time, I, I also don't like this attitude that you're describing of like, no one wants to take responsibility. No one wants to say that like, yes, I wield disproportionate economic or social or cultural influence in society. And therefore I have a responsibility to like, try to do the right thing or try to do good. Um, yeah. One of my, uh, one of my former classmates, uh, Na Natalia Dashan, she wrote this, this uh, long article called the real problem at Yale is not free speech. Mm -hmm. Um, but in that article, which I recommend reading, uh, she goes, uh, uh, in depth into this question about like, why is it that so many Yale students and graduates don't want to accept that they're members of the elite? Mm -hmm. You know, she writes about, and I, and I had this interaction or, or these kinds of interactions too, where I would run into a student and they would sort of like talk about how they didn't have enough money for lunch or whatever. And then you discover that like they come from like a, you know, a family of multimillionaires or something. And they just like, they don't want to own their yeah. own privilege, their own affluence. Um, and, and so, so yeah, so anyway, but what my, my own personal definition, I can't really pin it down. I mean, I, I also have like, by now I have like the biases of someone who spent too much, you know, I've, I've been in, you know, these fancy universities since 2015. Yeah. They're brainwashing you. <laughs> you know, well, well, I would say that like an, a, a member of the upper class or the elite is someone who it's not, it does it's not limited to, but at least it includes people who have attended or graduated these kinds of schools who have at least one parent who went to college. Um, that's sort of my like rough and ready definition for, for who, who at least is, is a part of the elite. Um, there are other people too. Um, but that, that's definitely a, a part of it. And I say that they have to have one parent who went to college because like, if you're a first generation student, often you are just completely culturally clueless. Like, you know, yeah. I, I talked to, other first gen students when I was at Yale. And it's like, even how to, how to fill out a, like the common app to go to, go to college is, mm -hmm. is like a bizarre kind of uh, a puzzle. And if you don't have a parent or someone who understands the college admission system, who can at least like help shepherd you, or at least know someone who can help you. Um, that's like a massive obstacle. And then once you get there, of course, like it's a culture shock as well. So, you know, it's uh, basically, yeah, I, I think, I definitely think that more people should, should own it. And you know, even if I don't necessarily call myself an elite, I, I do accept that like by now I have like amassed some kind of influence and I try to do the right thing and I try not to like partake in like a lot of the mudslinging and a lot of the ugly stuff that's been going on in, in social mm -hmm. media and in sort of the, the public more broadly. Yeah. Hey, you're, you're doing a great job as I'm watching everybody scream over like critical race theory. Like you pop up and it's just like you've highlighted something from a book. I'm like, that's cool. But yeah, man, it's, it's difficult to pick down. I've been asking so many people and I, and it's, and I'm getting 50 different answers. It's, it's interesting, but I, like, like you're saying, I do think, you know, one of the reasons people aren't owning it is this, uh, our obsession with like the meritocracy, right. And nobody wants to admit that they didn't Get, like they got somewhere that might have been based off like you know nepotism or something else you know right. like nobody, yeah, yeah. everybody wants to know hey this was hard work i've had struggles too you know what i mean so and then and then you have the people who just like they try to say uh you know oh i am privileged but it's like this weird kind of like signaling like, thing so yeah yeah like like self-flagellating you know like yeah. oh yeah i'm privileged but they're uncomfortable with it no one wants to own it like you know this sort of concept uh, I, I don't know if I'm saying this right, like noblesse oblige, something like that of like, you know, if you happen to be born into a high position or you you reach it somehow, that you have a responsibility to society. But I think like this abdication of like, no one wants to say that like, yeah, they're a member of the elite, like people who 
who help steer society, then, you know, you're just going to have like a bunch of like, I think that's like a really toxic combination of people who are uh, objectively well off, but they don't believe they are, that they believe they're somehow victimized or put upon or, you know, that like they've they somehow been done wrong. And it's those other people. Those are the elites. And like, I think that can create a lot of contentious kind of uh, dynamics that we're seeing now, especially playing out on, on like Twitter, for example. I mean, if you're on Twitter, odds are you're already like better off than, than a lot of other people. Yeah. But then like, if you can spend all day on Twitter and you have the blue check and whatever, like you're, 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 you're probably like uh, in that like upper, you know, the upper two quintiles at least. Yeah. So you, you can't say that you're, you know, victimized. And yeah. Yeah. Like there's not a kid in poverty with like a hundred thousand followers and a check mark (laughs) (laughs) or something like that. But but yeah, yeah, man, this, this was such a great conversation. I loved having you on. And, uh, yeah. So a couple of things, uh, where can people find you? Cause you are writing and I I get a lot of book recommendations from you. Uh, so where can they find you? And I could have sworn you're working on a book too. So you have any updates on that? Uh, yeah, so so people can find me. My website is robkhenderson.com and they can follow me on Twitter at Rob K. Henderson. Uh, and yeah, I'm uh, I'm writing a memoir. Uh, I signed uh, with Simon and Schuster. And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty far along in the process. I'm working on revisions. Uh, I just got a, a, a email from my publisher. Actually, they're they're um, asking me sort of questions about book cover ideas and mm. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're, I can finally see the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. It's been, it's been brutal, man. I mean, you know, you, you and I talking about all this stuff, I mean, trying to like dig up all of those old memories and like, like put myself back in the shoes of my like, yeah. you know, seven year old self and what life was like back then. And yeah, it was, it was tough, but, but yeah, hopefully the book, the book is it's on track to be published some point before the end of the year. It'll probably be like, you know, late, late in the year, but, but mm. hopefully in 2022, um, and yeah, just a memoir of, of, uh, you know, my, my experiences and sort of the lessons that I've learned and, um, you know, maybe some thoughts for, for possibly how to, how to improve things. So beautiful. So it also sounds like you'll be coming back on the podcast later this year after I read <laughs> yeah, it. I'd be happy to, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to help promote it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, man. So, so cool. I'll be, I'll be, uh, you know, keeping up with the updates and everything, but yeah, dude, thanks again for coming on and yeah, hopefully we're able to do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Chris. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rob. I, I like I said, I, I really, really enjoyed uh, talking with him. His his perspective is just really something I can connect with, and it's interesting. And I learn a ton from him. And I just, I really think he's a an important person to follow because there's a lot of people, you know, kind of in that intellectual realm who just like share their ideas and stuff and you know i'm just like is how much is this actually helping and i'm I'm glad rob touches on a lot of these topics because you know at the end of the day i think a lot of us are just trying to make this world just a tiny bit better whether it's for you know uh, us adults or you know more importantly the next generations and our kids who are struggling because they were dealt a bad hand so i really really uh respect and appreciate the work that rob's doing so make sure you head down the description follow rob and like he said that book should be hopefully coming out later this year and uh yeah he may be coming back on the podcast to chat about it so follow him uh over on twitter He'll give you a ton of great book recommendations. He's always tweeting out quotes and stuff. So make sure you're following them. All right. But before I let you go, again, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. That's down in the description below. I've been uploading a lot of these videos up to The Rewired Soul YouTube channel as well. So if you're like me and you like seeing people's faces as you listen to podcasts, uh, head over to The Rewired Soul YouTube channel. All right. And a couple couple real easy things you could do to help support the podcast. If you like this episode, if you like this conversation Rob and I had, if you're like, hey, I think some people who follow me could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it. Share it out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit. I, I don't know if anybody uses Snapchat still. Tell people about it. All right, share it. It, it really helps get the word out there. And secondly, uh, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. I value your feedback and the algorithms love that stuff. So it helps us reach some more people and, uh, you know, bring people into this wonderful little community. But some other ways you can help support the podcast if you're interested. Um, I have written some books. Some of them are about my personal experience. Some are about mental health, uh, dealing with addicts, 
Uh, I also wrote about my experience being canceled on YouTube. You can find my books uh, at TheRewiredSoul.com. And another thing uh, you can do to help support the podcast is there's an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, like I was talking with Rob about, asking him, like, you know, what helped you get on the right track? What helped you, uh, you know, become who you are today? And I was asking about therapy and stuff like that. Um, BetterHelp Online Therapy, it helped me out a ton. It's a service that I've personally used. So if you're dealing with anything or you just think it'd be good and you can benefit from therapy, BetterHelp, it's it's affordable. You can do it from the comfort of your own home. I used to do sessions like in my car on my lunch break. So it's super cool, super convenient. So check out that affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right. But anyways, another huge, huge thanks to Rob for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, he is in the UK, so <laughs> it's hard scheduling this. That's why I appreciate when anybody helps on. Because usually when we record, it's like evening for them, morning for me. So I appreciate him coming on. And make sure you're following him so you uh, don't miss the uh, the news around his upcoming book. All right. But yeah, uh, for all of you wonderful listeners out there, I will have at least one or two episodes for you this week. So stay tuned. But yeah, other than that, have an amazing rest of your day and I will see you next time.